Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Nicholas Danforth. Today we're going to be discussing a contemporary subject, one that comes to bear on uh, sort of international politics regarding Turkey, but also one that comes to bear on representations of the past, something that's certainly an issue for us here on Ottoman History Podcast. Our subject today is cultural policy in Turkey, and we're going to talk about what that is and what the different facets of that cultural policy are. And our guest is Asla Ilses. Asla Ilses is an assistant professor of culture and representation in Middle East and Islamic studies at New York University. Dr. Ilses is an active scholar with a wide range of interests, uh, both as an instructor and researcher. Her interests include cultural representation, cultural history, narratives of war and displacement, and the dynamics of alterity in late Ottoman and contemporary Turkish contexts. Her current book project, which is uh, provisionally entitled Humanism in Ruins, Liberal Multiculturalism, Memory, and the 1923 Greek-Turkish Population Exchange, examines the implications of liberal multiculturalism, quote-unquote, and cultural memory as a mode of humanism in the post-Cold War and post-1980 military coup era. Dr. Issus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So one of the topics that's come up in some of your recent publications and, and the topic we're going to kind of start the conversation off with today is this issue of branding. Um, branding is normally something we think about uh, in terms of corporations trying to market a product or even perhaps as academics trying to uh, sell ourselves as specialists in a particular field when we're on the job market. But branding is also something that is uh, an aspect of... Uh, modern global politics. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you mean by branding in the case of Turkey, what this branding process is, and, uh, you know, more structurally what you feel that it represents. Um, basically, uh, I think that the branding of Turkey is not uh, divorced from branding policies that uh, accompanied other nation states. And uh, when this became like an important uh, policy, let's say, was in 2006 when World Economic Forum has hosted uh, a series of rebranding the Middle East uh, sessions in its uh, meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh. And um, uh, later, like six months later, there was another meeting that took place in Istanbul, and they there they held a session on branding Turkey. So what this meant is that um, the World Economic Forum has invited in branding consultants from branding uh, consultation agencies um, based mostly in London and uh, and ca- who came in and then who actually brainstormed together with certain um, politicians, uh, policymakers and um, business people and uh, th- thought together how to uh, reconsider and rethink um, the image of the of the nation state in question that is in this case um, Middle Eastern countries um, and how to improve this image in order to um, give an image of uh, stability abroad uh, to attract foreign investors and uh, improve economy. So this is the co- context in which I'm also using the, uh, the word branding. Right. So it's, it's essentially uh, reshaping the image of Turkey in order to market it to investors and, and companies and exactly. institutions yeah. in Europe and in the United States. So what, you know... No, maybe also in the Gulf region. And of, yeah. sure, that's a yeah. separate topic we're definitely going to yeah. talk about today. 
maybe if you could summarize, like in a nutshell, what is this new brand? What is the brand we're talking about? Of course, it's probably evolving, but yeah, it's in the making. I think. Um, well, I, one of the things that I think uh, it has been cross fertilized in the context of Turkey was the Alliance of Civilizations um, uh, initiative that was like a. Uh, co-sponsored by the Turkish and Spanish uh, prime ministers uh, in 2005. And then it was uh, institutionalized at the United Nations and it's actually hosted here at uh, Chrysler Building uh, right now. So United Nations Alliance of Civilizations. And um, one of the things that they also had in mind was to, um, just like the um, World Economic Forum branding the Middle East um, um, initiative, uh, the idea was to repair the image of Islamic countries and uh, or even Islam itself, whatever that meant, and uh, to show that rather than the clash of civilizations, an alliance of civilizations was possible. And um, one of their meetings actually took place uh, just 10 days prior to the World Economic Forum that was held in Istanbul. And 10 days later, actually, this language of bridging civilizations, Turkey as a bridge of civilizations, has also crawled into the uh, language of branding Turkey uh, meetings in the World Economic Forum, where actually Turkey was proposed as a bridge of civilizations. So this did had a, a number of impact on um, Turkey's cultural policy um, mm-hmm. and also how it uh, represented itself through um, uh, cultural and entrepreneurship, let's put it this way. But um, I would say that, of course, there have been some changes um, over time um, uh, on this subject. Right now, it is not very clear where this project is standing, but um, there are also university initiatives that have been established as part of this, and so on and so forth, like uh, with um, civilizational research centers, institutes, and so on and so forth. And I think all this feeds into the branding um, process as well. So the the Turkey as a bridge for civilization is obviously one of the main aspects of this brand, but you mentioned repairing Mm -hmm. the image. Maybe could you flesh it out a little more what you mean by repairing the image, what needed to be repaired, and how... um, these organizations and advisors that are branding Turkey uh, sought to do so? Well, actually, Turkey, of course, obviously was not the only one. Middle East was not the only region. Um, Simon Anhold is the person who uh, initiated, he's the founding kind of father, uh, so to speak, of the idea of uh, branding a place and branding a nation. I mean, of course, now cities are branded, uh, etc. Right? That's also in place. Yeah. But one of the things that that they sought to do is to say that, like, um, there is like a discrepancy in terms of economy. How the image of, for example, let's say a Scandinavian country is, or how, uh, let's say, the image of, uh, in this case, Turkey is, for example. Right? One of the things that Simon Anhold said was that repairing this image can actually bring justice to the country. Um, mm-hmm. And so certainly Turkey had a bad rep with bad, like negative prisons and things like that, right? When I first came here, certainly that was like one of the first things that came to mind. Um, so uh, basically uh, that kind of uh, work was very much embedded in the idea that you could change the image 
of a country by a series of promotions, right? So the same thing was done, for example, for Libya before Gaddafi was taken down. And so uh, in like in Turkey, for example, they say new Turkey 2023. I suspect that like that comes from brand consultants agencies too, because the same rhetoric resurfaces after Qaddafi's uh, um, Libya was also advised by brand consultants. And we see like Libya and the new Libya, like the same language, oh. which basically. So repairing the image, it is not confined to the Middle East. They had also brand Africa projects and so on and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, I think in the context of the Middle East, it meant also the post 9-11 era, right? So it had an additional layer attached to it, um, so to speak. Could you maybe just give us some uh, particularly poignant examples of this branding, what it entailed, both in terms of image, but also in terms of practice, sort of uh, concrete uh, policies uh, put into effect? So basically, I, I can say that like um, uh, for that, that's of course, this is of course my future research project. Um, it's I'm still, I have collected a lot of data about this already, but I still uh, didn't complete it. Um, I'll, I'll just limit what I can say to, for example, for the time being, uh, to uh, one of the things that was discussed in uh, Sharma Sheikh. Um, it, so there were like different groups that uh, came to brainstorm how to promote the image of the Middle East. Um, but one of their ba- basic concerns was that they didn't want to promote the image of the Middle East in a positive way uh, that could be easily shattered by anything, any political um, upheaval that might happen. Of course, this is um, 2006, right? So um, this is prior to all the re- like revolts that happened across the board in the region. Um, so one of, the <laughs> one of the ideas, so it, during the brainstorming process, one of the ideas that was proposed was to um, have like this campaign of um, uh, red carpet in, red tape out. So in order to show like um, an, an unshatterable um, positive image of the Middle East, they had the idea that there would be a flying carpet of over Egypt's um, pyramids. And then the flying carpet would fly over, um, and I'm using this in quotation marks now, but they didn't, uh, modern buildings to show that tradition and modernity could coexist together. Um, in another session, they use civilization um, with C in um, uh, in copyright C, you know, so like made in the Middle East, civilization made in the Middle East. So civilization would be part of this branding project as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it was really... Um, it was really very interesting uh, process. Uh, so uh, th- these were like some brainstormed ideas um, that came up uh, during that time period. Um, and then in uh, and in the context of Turkey, they focused on changing perceptions of Turkey as well. Um, so I, I, this is like, a, you know, this has been like an ongoing process of changing the perception of Turkey, uh, promoting a positive image. And this is when you also were hearing in the international um, world context, um, Turkey is a model of democracy for the Middle East, right? Because that was the image that was being promoted. Because basically, I think this was like, 
kind of uh, my hunch is that this was Turkey was chosen as if like it was a representative of a pilot project, so to speak, as a bridge of civilizations. Uh, one of the things that they were saying is Turkey's admission to the EU would be um, in alliance of civilizations, but also in the um, not in I'm sorry in the. Um, in the uh, World Economic Forum, Turkey's admission to the um, uh, European Union would be a demonstration that an alliance of civilizations was possible. Um, so Turkey was sort of uh, taken as this pet project to promote all these ideas. But of course, uh, in beginning like 2007-2008 with the um, KCK trials, with all of these different um, policies at play. Yes, of course, now Kurds can uh, say, I am Kurdish, your language is like, or their languages um, rights are to a certain extent um, uh, mentioned as a right. But this doesn't mean that they do have so, uh, the same socioeconomic rights or that their disparities of uh, in terms of socioeconomic or equal citizenship rights were addressed. And of course, this is not confined to the Kurds, but all the other as well. So um, just to give you a general idea. Yeah. And you're really putting into context something that I didn't think too much about before in my earlier education, sort of going to different countries in the Middle East and constantly being given, usually in some context created by the cultural ministry of the country I'm in, let's say Syria in 2008 or in Armenia in 2010, this constant trope of one cradle of civilization everywhere Every country in the Middle East was simultaneously claiming to be cradle of civilization, but also this place where multiple peoples live together for uh, thousands of years. We we can kind of see how this uh, branding process is being multiplied and, and applied to all these different contexts separately. Yeah. Um, if the, with this um, flying carpets uh, thing, if there is actually one thing with that project that they showed in their minds is that if if there is one thing unshatterable about the region itself, it is Orientalism. And I think it's very important to underline this because um, this idea to, to repair the image of the Middle East, the one thing that they could think of as stable uh, was was, you know, a flying carpet over the pyramids of Egypt is really disingenuous to say the least, you know. Well, I think at, at, at this point, maybe it's good to shift our discussion a little bit. Um, be, you know, when thinking of this question of Orientalism, uh, specifically to the, the context of Turkey and specifically to the use of uh, historical memory uh, yeah. in this branding process. Maybe we could talk a little bit about how historical memory and the presentation of a country's history fits into its branding. Well, obviously, um, I think that uh, the shaping and uh, reframing of the past is nothing new. Um, this, uh, I, I think sometimes we think that memory is something of the present, but we sometimes tend to forget that the past is made of such moments of the present, understanding of the present, right? So um, in different time periods had their own cultural memory repertoires um, that was also in a turn uh, were shaped and molded by their concerns and issues at stake or political dynamics um, uh, or socioeconomic dynamics of the time right um, so uh, in the in respect of uh, branding I think uh, one thing that I can say is the promotion of the idea of liberal multiculturalism is what comes across 
And I think this really um, closely speaks to the um, promotion of a particular type of uh, memory as opposed to the others. Um, uh, so basically what we do see is um, uh, going back to maybe in the context of Turkey to Ottoman history, um, uh, anachronistically um, celebrating uh, Ottoman um, demographic fabric as a multicultural uh, context, um, which is very anachronistic, obviously, um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and then uh, to take the idea of the millet system, which is a 19th century issue, uh, to talk about uh, as if it was something that happened all throughout the Ottoman era um, in the same way. Um, and uh, to talk about, and then to plug that in into the understanding of a minority uh, and, uh, in the context of Turkey. So this usually is, um, is uh, limited to the idea of Armenians, Greeks, Jews, and then Sunni Turks to a larger extent. And what we do see here, of course, it has its own inclusion and exclusion, just because these groups are recognized the way, um, like in, in these campaigns and uh, doesn't mean that each group is recognized in the same way uh, among themselves or even between themselves. So for instance, um, uh, we do see a very good display of this in the Istanbul uh, 2010 European Capital of Culture because uh, Istanbul was selected again European Capital of Culture in 2006, right? Just when all these meetings were happening with World Economic Forum, with Alliance of Civilizations, mm, etc. And uh, right at that time, EU changes its own cultural policy and uh, puts an emphasis on uh, uh, diversity as a selection criteria of European Capitals of Culture. Of course, we do see, of course, am among the branding consultants, then uh, a few years later, a, a special issue that comes out and says um, branding um, the place uh, and uh, like and um, European capital of culture as cultural entrepreneurship. So that is also part of the branding uh, project. So what we did see, for instance, in the Istanbul European and this, is, I think, uh, policy did crystallize there in the context of Istanbul European Capital of Culture is, uh, for instance, we see um, the Roma with their music. We see uh, uh, the Armenians with their music, um, uh, but or the Greeks uh, with their music, but uh, represented there as part of this Ottoman heritage, uh, you know, um, celebration. And as a show that uh, the liberal multiculturalism uh, is rediscovered in Ottoman history, in, in Ottoman past as a history of tolerance, right? So, um, which is also very problematic and anachronistic in its own way. Um, but, uh, but we do see this, you know, promoted there. But just because, for example, the Greeks are promoted that way doesn't mean the school in Halki is opened, right? Um, just because the Armenians uh, are um, uh, taken that way doesn't mean that the genocide is recognized. So it's just like there are many different aspects of it that you can actually uh, think about um, in relation to this. But uh, this is like a very, I think, um, uh, in a nutshell, it's telling uh, of like what part of that memory is selectively articulated in present day cultural concerns. 
Well, that that does, does seem. That answer- yes, and that does seem like kind of the point of marketing and branding, right? Of Is course. That, in place of actually thing. bringing about like, you know, I'm just thinking of like a Pepsi or Coca-Cola commercial. They usually contain a lot of images that in practice, you know, do not come about from drinking Coca-Cola, yeah. <laughs> whether, you know, how much fun you're having or how it, th- beautiful is- you are, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. And yet, as with Coke and Pepsi, it's been a very successful rebranding in the case of Ottoman history, it seems like. In spite of all yeah. these problems, even some academics have been on board with that. Of course. But they have always been. Like, you know, there have always been academics who have been on board for uh, different policies and projects all throughout, you know, nation state histories, not just in Turkey, but elsewhere too, right? Uh, Samuel Huntington, for one. Right, because that's what always struck me as interesting is that much as you know we've come to think of nationalism as a historical project and the role of academics in promoting nationalist history, but also this transnational multicultural history is very much a political project, as you point out. And to think of the role we as academics have in that project seems like a good place for some self-reflection. As we, as you said, they, we do see some academics who do jump on the board and um, who do promote these ideas um, of uh, branding and who are actually, or who do um, follow along the lines of uh, looking at the perceptions and images of Turkey. Um, uh, and um, on the one hand, um, uh, and on the other hand, we do see uh, an ongoing process of trying to suppress some of the production of knowledge that is happening at different universities. Um, and by this, I mean, for example, cases like uh, Professor Onur Hamzoğlu, um, who was the chair of the Department of Public Health at uh, Kocaeli University. And um, and he did find uh, heavy metals in um, breast milk and infant feces during his research on the residence of one of the biggest industrial sites of Turkey, right? Um, so uh, as a result of this, the, the mayors of the town, Dilovas, uh, and um, the affected town, um, have uh, uh, brought him to court and uh, said that on the, on the grounds that he was promoting uh, fear, among public. Um, And then um, there were uh, investigations, disciplinary investigations that were also opened against him, right? So on the one hand, we do see um, some academics, but on the other hand, we do see some attempts to suppress negative, anything that can potentially impact the negative image um, uh, of uh, Turkey uh, to also be suppressed. Of course, this is not new. This was uh, done by the military after the coup, um, or even, you know, uh, when it, there was no coup, <laughs> when they were still powerful. Um, but at the same time, I think here we do see more economic concerns also uh, informing such policies as well in branding. As far as the role of academics in all this, it also struck me. You know, I think there are a lot of people in the academic and political communities in Turkey who maybe sincerely believe that history in the past has been a weapon that was used against Turkey by foreigners and that, you know, you talked about in your discussion of branding, a lot of times you can really pitch this as an issue of justice. I think there are a lot of people who really feel like this rebranding of Turkish history or this reinvention of Turkish history is really righting a wrong that was done by colonialism, in, by and, colonialism, yeah. by you know biased Western historians, and it 
that in some sense seems to me the backdrop against which many historians are willing to participate. That's an excellent point you are making. And that is actually, I think that's one of the um, reasons why certainly I do need to do more research on this. So I just don't want to um, say too much yet on this. Um, but my, my sense is that there is like a lot going on in terms of, uh, of, of this in the context of Turkey. My problem with this is that if there is actually a concern with negative image, what it does is that um, in, in the context of branding, it reorganizes the relationship between uh, the bureaucrats uh, and the citizens of a country. So what it does is that um, rather than the, the bureaucrats trying to solve um, socioeconomic political problems of the citizens, um, now it is the citizens who are at the disposal of the bureaucrats in order to promote a positive image of the country, which is what we have seen in Gezi Park protests. Um, the Minister of Culture and Tourism said, um, this is hurting our image. Even Abdullah Gül, who was the president then, um, he himself said, um, this is hurting. The, we worked for 10 years to build an image, and in one week, this image is being shattered. Right. Um, so, yes, there is certainly that aspect of it. But what really concerns me here is that uh, there is certainly like um, there is a lot to say about um, uh, the um, biased production of knowledge, biased representations of certain countries. Um, and of course, certainly the international context uh, and global powers are not innocent in that respect. We know the kind of productions of knowledge that they have endorsed. But what I what I want to say here is that this, in turn, uh, led to the idea that, like, just as the example that I was giving you earlier, um, with uh, the. Um, the uh, the brand consultants and the uh, people who were brainstorming in the 2006 session of uh, rebranding the Middle East, they were trying to find an image of step that would be stable, right? So stability becomes also another important notion in uh, pro perf like um, promoting the brand. Stability in the name of stability, then a lot of um, policies are implemented, right? Um, so Gezi Park protests certainly are seen as uh, bringing instability to the country. This is why people, citizens, should not be disobedient, but like in a nutshell, I'm simplifying, of course. But when you read the political discourse that was dominating uh, most of the um, political figures in the um, in the ruling party at that time period, um, what you do see is that um, AK Party. What you do see that is that uh, basically um, this is bringing us instability. Okay, you made your point. Just go back. But this is not like. Uh, but protests is not just a performance. Right. It is not a performance of civil rights, which is what I'm also concerned about. Like, you know, it's OK as long as, uh, you know, you do not do really harm to economy. But again, another uh, example I can bring here is that the, the uh, workers of the metal industry, um, like last week, I believe, wanted to go on a massive strike. Yeah. And, um, and now uh, the uh, cabinet passed, like uh, they, they agreed uh, that basically um, this should be postponed for, uh, for a time period for national security purposes. Okay, so then what we see is stability security, all these things really informing one another. Uh, and then it really doesn't solve the problem. It just suppresses or actually pushes under the ground 
so to speak, whatever um, discontent and issues that might be uh, boiling underneath. And so uh, just for the sake of having a positive image. And I just want to say that this is also not new. This was the rationale of the military coup in 1980, that there was no stability in the country, that basically um, uh, for them, one of the most important thing was that in order to bring stability, uh, the military coup was inevitable. That was the main thing they said. But the, but the 10% percent um, uh, threshold that they brought into the parliament was to bring also stability to the country. Um, so again, there is a history of all of these things, and none of this is new. The problem is that now this becomes like a, the most important, um, like, and obviously we can all agree that what the military did, that 10% percent threshold, didn't bring really stability. Right. It brought a very undemocratic process to Turkey. They were trying to avoid having small parties, having coalitions. Right. Um, so, again, it's like um, how they are framed, how they are shaped in the name of branding in Turkey abroad, democratization. I think it empties the, the terms uh, from their actual meaning. And I think maybe today what we really need to discuss is what we understand from democracy and maybe try to, rather than talking about representative, talk about more plurality and mm-hmm. put an emphasis there and yeah. citizenship rights. It almost seems there's an irony in the fact that Turkey's positive image is in some way dependent on the negative image of its many of its neighbors in that both in the Cold War, as you were talking about, and then after the Arab Spring, This image of Turkey is an island of stability in an unstable region, which helped in its relations with the United States. It helped in promoting uh, its image among foreign investors, was such a huge part of the brand and was of such course. an important part of that. Of and that feeds into then the need to maintain that stability yeah. at all costs. Yes. And then Gizi happened. Right. The problem with that I have is that there were already a lot of problems that were happening in Turkey before Gizi. And the 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 issue is that like uh people were turning the other way like you know it, so it's not like yes this branding was happening but it was almost like you know a decision that was being made that you know um those negative aspects is okay they are happening but we need to see the positive things i think that that really happened in also like in uh, international and transnational con- uh, institutions as well so um I think that it is an irony, um, but uh, when I when I say and then Gezi happened, I don't want to take away from the fact that there were already really uh, huge abuses of um, citizenship rights, and bu- there were also already big bureaucratic problems. I think that gets to this whole question of brand versus reality, and that there's certainly this implication that what was bad for business in Turkey wasn't stable authoritarianism. It was people reacting against authoritarianism and creating instability. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, as you said earlier, the international community in its own way is implicated in almost preferring superficial stability sure. to real. And perhaps not even just international investors, but indeed uh, a certain segment of the middle class or ascendant uh, middle class in Turkey that, of course, is benefiting, at least in their own perception, from this uh, consensus of stability. Of course, but I think that even the human rights regime from its onset was not uh, not only putting an emphasis mostly on cultural and political rights um, uh, as much, especially in the aftermath of the po- like Cold War era, um, but also it was not equally approaching different countries and holding them... Uh, 
you know, accountable in the equal and uh, to the same uh, criteria. So while certain places like Turkey got bad, uh, you know, attention, and I think for a good reason, um, torture cases and so on and so forth, um, some other places... Um, did not receive sufficient um, attention. And, um, and for that, I would include many European countries um, and North America. So I find it sometimes very tricky to be able to like to find the place, a niche uh, or, or a, like a position where you can be critical of a local context without necessarily buying into these orientalizing or um, culturalizing violence, culturalizing uh, negative human rights issues, uh, contexts either, because I also find that equally problematic and condescending. So to criticize the local context, but without forgetting that, um, you know, that there is actually uh, no such idealized um, context elsewhere either. You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome back to Autumn History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Nick Danforth talking with Asla Ilses about her research on uh, branding and cultural policy in Turkey. Uh, so we've been talking about the, the, the creation of a new brand for a country and all the things that have, have come with it and sort of also the uh, economic policies that it's supposed to prop up. And Asla, one of the things you've, you've, you've been centering on is how... This process of branding and creating a positive image of Turkey is uh, so tied to creating an image of stability uh, within which uh, commerce can function as it's supposed to, I guess, in the, in the minds of the people who are doing this branding. Uh, and, and we talked about some of the, the tensions there, particularly with regard to Gezi Park protests and all of the, the discontent that we've seen in the past year. I want to ask you your thoughts on uh, another very prominent instance of uh, protest and controversy and, and outrage in Turkey that occurred, I guess it's coming on almost a year ago, uh, um, uh, the Soma mining accident. Uh, of course, something that's less in, in the public eye today, but this this very... Like, telling. Yes, it's telling. And it, it, it was, in many ways, a much more serious event than, than Gezi in the sense that like, a, a huge number of workers who are already in bad conditions. Maybe we can talk about that uh, dying in this horrible mining accident that appears to be uh, the consequence of poorly regulated mining practices. So, you know, I know you haven't written on it the way you've written on Gezi and other things, but I wanted to uh, ask you, you know, your thoughts on Soma uh, and how it ties into this uh, question of branding and, and what branding masks, what it covers up. Thank you. I think this is a very important question. Um, I think that what happens with uh, Gezi or um, Soma is that they actually crystallize the dynamics of uh, uh, of rights uh, of uh, citizens of workers. Um, and um, when uh, an incident happens, to what are the limits of uh, citizenship rights? What are the limits of uh, 
you know, um, even right to life, you know, um, and workers' rights are, and um, whether you can lament, whether you can mourn for it, um, because there were also huge backlash against that as well, uh, as you well know, um, uh, against the mourning uh, citizens, and there were uh, who were met with uh, police violence as well, um, and um, and I. I also see tend to see the police as workers uh, who are do not have, um, you know, the right to unionize uh, officially. So like there are many layers to this, right, that we can talk about. But what I think has happened with also, of course, Soma that has, uh, you know, that you know, that was that really crystallized what the working conditions of minors are. Um, uh, and um, for the um, like, uh, for the public, um, and the uh, suppression of it, almost immediately from, you know, even though there were um, some people who kept talking about it. Um, there was like an attempt to say like to calm the to cool the waters, let's put it that way. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so basically, and to try to not to turn that into yet another symbol, um, right? Uh, of of uh, one of the f- you know um, failings of uh, or failures of the state uh, towards its own um, citizens. And so, basically, I think that uh, uh, on the one hand, we these are instances that really crystallize that there are still issues that we do need to address in terms of. Um, bureaucratic uh, problems in terms of uh, citizenship rights, in terms of um, uh, where we are heading towards the deregulation uh, and things like that um, uh, in this uh, context, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, if we were to think about like how this was like uh, shown as like, oh, it happens also in, it happened in Britain in 19th century, I don't know if you remember uh, the the talks about like official sure. talks about this. The official discourses that mining accidents are something that happen it's all a, the time, even though an accident like that hadn't actually happened in a very long time. I mean, uh, and but the thing is that these examples actually also show that like were I think geared to show the people in Turkey, or at least to cer- to certain uh, groups. Um, uh, in Turkey and abroad, that basically this is not just something that happens in Turkey, that this is an accident. Um, but of course, this comes with uh, law, this comes with regulations, this comes with workers' rights organization, um, their rights to uh, go on uh, strike or not, right? What are the functions of unions today? Because um, whether or not the unions are really um, places where workers are organized, or is it also an yet another site of governmentality, right? Um, mm-hmm. What is at stake in these kind of organizations? I think there is a lot that to be said about, you know, what this crystallizes. Um, and of course, it's not new, but it was an ongoing process. Um, it, and whether or not then can we see this as an accident or can we see this as a, uh, as a, a problem in, in the legislature, of, and uh, regulation of uh, such work sites, right? I mean, it just made when you when you talked about the red carpets, no red tape line. This is exactly yeah what we can what we should think of. This brand of the no red tape Middle East does it almost necessitates deregulation. 
Yes, and I think that um, in, in that respect, I find um, uh, Loïc Wacan, who's a sociologist, his idea that neoliberal state is not just the deregulation of the markets um, and uh, the state crumbling in economy um, uh, statement, but rather he, he says that, uh, I find it very compelling how he frames this in the context of United States. He says that um, in order to think about this context, we also have to take into account the security um, uh, measures um, that the st uh, that are being taken by the state and that it is actually uh, the economy's success that generates sites of uh, securitization and that uh, the uh, law enforcement uh, and uh, and prisons and um, uh, are the play channels where the money is poured into rather than social services and it is indeed um, we can uh, the, the, it, indeed the state is not disappearing indeed uh, in, in a neoliberal context like the United States, but indeed it is uh, as strong as ever or even stronger because so much money is poured into keeping the crowds at bay, right? Um, uh, and and so on and so forth. So it's like a very, I think, a very interesting um, and important point to make. And I'm going to tie this back to the branding um, uh, issue that you raised earlier. Um, basically, when Simon Anholt, uh, who is, again, as I said, was the founding figure of the um, branding the nation, branding the place um, uh, idea, uh, he said that basically uh, the major problem that he was trying to solve with this branding initiative was the fact that... Um, because uh, like certain countries like United States or um, Scandinavia, right, in countries in Scandinavia, they had uh, such a positive image and that places like, for example, Turkey or um, in Africa, like um, um, Brazil, India, Mexico, they did not have the same kind of image. And in order to uh, and um, and that this affected consumer and investor uh, uh, confidence. Uh, confidence and attitudes and a consumption of um, the products of certain countries. So what he wanted to solve with this process uh, was to really uh, bring like countries in a more positive, like that have suffered from this discrepancy in his words, to make it more like a positive in the public eye. But what this has done, and he said, uh, in a few instances that it's very important to also couple this with policy, local policies, like it, branding cannot happen with just pure imagery. This, this is not exactly how it evolved, right? Like, um, and um, this may be the point of departure. And, uh, I, and I think it's a problematic one too, because rather than, than addressing why in the first place there was a discrepancy of images between United States, um, the Scandinavian countries, and places like Turkey um, in the first place, while we are seeing like, um, how, what are the implications of those? Like, I'm not trying to say that Turkey and uh, United States or Scandinavia countries um, should have the same kind of image abroad. What I'm saying is, what are the issues that make us, um, make it invisible to our eye in the public, in the transnational public domain, in terms of human rights abuses, um, sure. in terms of uh, like democratic rights, um, wh where are the limits of democratic rights, right, in each country, rather than addressing those, um, what is addressed is the negative rep versus positive rep, right? Um, and we do know that 
um, rights abuses that happen everywhere. We know like um, uh, the security issues and um, rights abuses are, you know, in the growth um, in many places. Um, uh, the more riots there will be, um, the more I think uh, this is going to become authoritarian. So even authoritarianism is something that we need to think about. And maybe in today's context, we need to think about illiberal or maybe even authoritarian democracies where you do go and vote in democratic means, but actually citizen rights uh, are crippled and um, where the bureaucracy is um, heavily pouring into security matters. And for this, I want to give as an example the Minerva project um, Mm -hmm. that is... uh, um, actually launched by the military here in the United States. And this year, last year, they have funded a project um, uh, that was going to look into different riot sites through what they called, and I'm uh, uh, more or less paraphrasing what they are saying there, um, social contagion sites um, in <laughs> places like the Gezi Park protests. Um, and, uh, and who gets active and who doesn't th- through following the digital traces. Um, and uh, and at what time do the crowds actually tip and they actually, uh, you know, um, uh, become active? I mean, what you just said is, this, is this, this notion of social contagion yeah. uh, that you're going to essentially, I guess you're just, the idea is that you have to police people's emotions and stop them from spreading. It really does tie into this issue of branding. You know, branding is essentially seeking to manipulate people's feelings about a particular topic. And so, um, you know, to tie it back into your your question of uh, this question of of uh, relative justice uh, on the global stage that the the branders uh, would use, we can see how this is, you know, even feeding into a larger history of capitalism and a larger history uh, of colonialism. Really, of course, the idea that the, the you know many of the problems in countries in the middle east are the consequence of a long colonial legacy a very complex history the idea that those ills could be or the the justice justice could be restored by simply uh, changing the image of those countries rather than addressing the root causes is certainly uh, a troubling one for me Exactly. And I think then it becomes like a politics of alignment. And actually, it does reproduce the same kind of um, uh, almost orientalist approach, because it's also saying, for example, uh, when Turkey was shown, for instance, as a model for democracy in the mid 2000s after these initiatives, um, of course, why does the Middle East need a model? Right. Uh, in the first place. The second is, um, this is like good enough for Turkey, uh, whereas there were clearly issues that were ha- that, that needed to be resolved in Turkey, right? Um, so I think that, um, and, uh, and, and of course, the, uh, the, the, the fact that this also masks uh, why it is that um, maybe the world's big economic powers are always like invisible to such grading um, is also a, a main issue here, I think. It's really yeah, sad. sure. Absolutely. I mean, the whole role of Orientalism here is actually really important. Yeah. Nick, this reminds me of something we talked about in, in your research on the 1950s and how the U.S. was trying to uh, sort of rebrand its diplomatic partner in Turkey or how U.S. diplomats were representing Turkey uh, in the documents. And you could see how they would easily... Through the through playing on Orientalist tropes, 
completely manipulate the image of Turkey within their their uh, representations and reports, even within the same paragraph. I remember you had a you had an example where you could basically say anything you want about Turkey, positive or negative, either way, using these Orientalist tropes. Well, and this was something I was actually going to ask about earlier, but there is this fascinating thing with branding and that you sometimes have to brand to different audiences. And what I think created a lot of the ridiculousness you're talking about in a lot of the American analyses of Turkish democracy in the 50s is that at once American diplomats were trying to promote Turkey to the American public as a model democracy that could be a good, you know, a feel-good partner in the war against, uh, you know, Soviet dictatorship, which required Turkey being a liberal democratic state, but then also at the same time trying to justify the continued need for American involvement in Turkey, the continued need for American developmental aid to Turkey. Uh, so there was also this need for Turkey to be presented as, you know, not yet a perfect democracy, not yet a perfectly developed state in order to justify continued U.S. aid. Well, we've raised a lot of uh, interesting issues that have tied into, uh, you know, of course, the history of Orientalism, the history of uh, global capitalism, uh, even kind of hit close to home for a program like Ottoman History Podcast, thinking about how it's implicated in these uh, um, uh, branding um processes, although I will note we, we have no uh, sponsor or backer, so that might be one difference than, uh, from some of the other projects we've talked about. But anyway, we've touched on a lot of great s- stuff today. We could keep talking a lot longer. Asla, I know um, there's, there's much more to talk about, but we'll have to end it here for today for, this, for the sake of our listeners. But I want to thank you so much for giving, you, for giving us your time today and, and speaking speaking with us about some of these fascinating topics. Well, thank you so much for uh, this great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for coming. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and staying with us to the end. And uh, for those who are interested in finding out more about our subject today, we have a bibliography on our website where you'll, you'll find a few publications by Dr. Asla Issa's, as well as some other uh, readings of relevance for this discussion. That's also the place where you can leave your comments and questions and get in touch with our Facebook community for Ottoman History Podcast, now more than 20,000 strong. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time. And until then, take care. <laughs>